It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We had hoped to bring you a conversation with former Governor Bill Ritter this morning, but there has been a scheduling conflict. He's on an airplane, and so we'll talk about his new book calling for an energy revolution a week from today. For starters, then, the story of a woman now who had Olympic aspirations, Martha Russo, but an injury in college changed everything. And soon after that injury, she found herself in a ceramic studio and loved how physical an art form it was. Since then, she has shown her abstract sculptures around the country. Her pieces range from small sculptures resembling human anatomy to large works that look like something extracted from the ocean floor. Well, she has landed her first solo show at a museum called Colisere, Latin for Come Together. And what comes together is 25 years of her work. It is on at the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art. And Martha, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Field hockey was your sport, and you had your eye on the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. What happened? Well, after injuring my knee for the second time in the midst of the last uh tryouts in Philadelphia, my doctors encouraged me to hang up the stick and and also not only hang up the stick, which, which you know, put me out of the Olympics for 84, they also said it would be a real detriment to me if I continue to play any running sport, which was even more of a blow. That you would be putting your health at risk if you did. Yeah, absolutely. And so sort of Well, very begrudgingly, I got back to Princeton. I had taken a year off to go off off to tryouts for the Olympics. But when I got back to Princeton, you know, I had four or five hours every day where I normally was training, and I really didn't know what to do with myself. And really, my roommates, I was driving them crazy with all my sort of excess energy. (laughs) And uh, so I found myself wanting to, you know, find something to do. And, and I landed in the ceramic studios at Princeton and really just went all at it and, and essentially was looking to find something to do to keep my mind off of everybody else going to practice. And I was like, okay, what do I do next? And there was a physicality to ceramics that you enjoyed, something, I, I guess, that reminded you enough of sport to stick with. Absolutely. There's a a certain coordination that it takes to manipulate material. And I was working on the wheel, uh, the potter's wheel a lot then. And I and I had an affinity for it because it was that sort of fine motor skill coordination that I really was drawn to. And I was super competitive about it. Like I wanted to get better. And uh, you wanted to be Olympic about it. (laughs) Yes, I really did. (laughs) I went at it with that kind of um, focus and temperament. And it was fun. I mean, I really enjoyed it. And it was really different, everything about it. How did you deal with that complete altering of your own label for yourself? Mm. To that point, you had been a field hockey player. And that was going to be your success. That was going to be your passion. And then all of a sudden, you've got to find another label. This label is such a maligned term, but you've got to find another way to define yourself. That's a great question. I mean, I really felt bereft. I had known my persona was the big athlete on campus and beyond. And, And now it's this very quiet, 
sort of introspective. Brooding, maybe. Absolutely. And, you know, you're all alone. It's not a team sport by any mean. But but what's interesting is my life has gone on as an artist. It really does have that team element, especially now because my work is very involved um, in terms of installation art and space, and it's very physical. And I need, you know, for the Bimoka show, I had over 30 people helping me install the show. And so there is this sort of aspect that, that reminds me of being on, you know, being on the field. At CPRnews.org, there are images of your work, and I find the work to be just mind-blowing in its intricacy. And I wonder how you aren't driven to madness doing it. I mean, we're talking about pieces, giant pieces in some cases, that have, what, thousands of individual parts. Well, the madness to me is sort of the comfort in lots of ways. Um, I know the sort of the centerpiece of the show is a, a installation called Nomos, which is the Greek root for the word to wander and wonder. And I came about the piece in a very wandering way. In a way, it's how you came about your art career, too. Yes, exactly. Very much so. And and the piece, showing the work at Bimoka has given me an opportunity to put the installation in its own very specific spatial environment. It has hundreds of porcelain tendrils protruding from a curved wall and you pack these delicate pieces very close to each other. Am, am I right to see a squid in this? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, growing up on the Connecticut coastline, um, I was immersed in that environment and still love anything that has to do with the ocean. But but more than that, I think it's any any environment or any object that promotes a certain curiosity and wonder is what I'm going for. And what I find interesting when I put up Nomos is people who are from the coasts, have grown up in a, a water environment, they totally see the ocean. But people from inside the country, they see the prairie, they see grasses, they see bones. And it's very much this sort of psychological kind of litmus test on, on what you what you've grown up with. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the celebrated Boulder County sculptor Martha Russo, who has a career retrospective on at the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art called Colisere, Latin for Come Together. Uh, to go back to those earliest days of you and, and, and sculpture, I understand that when you were taking those first classes, I think at Princeton, uh, your instructor was not convinced that this was the right medium for you. Well, I, you know, very quickly, when I was a sophomore, I did take a ceramics class because I had taken some ceramics in high school and really liked it. But she kicked me out because oh. <laughs> yeah, because I had missed two classes in a row because I was off playing field hockey for the Olympic squad, which was a very random event. You got a call literally like three days before and they'd say, you got to go to Germany or you got to, you know, the Dutch are in California, your ticket's sent, you better get out there. And when I got back to class, Toshiko Takaesu, of whom I did not know was this really famous ceramic artist and incredibly tough, she basically said, "Uh, what are you doing here? I gave you a spot away to somebody who might care about ceramics. And that was sort of it. She kicked me right out. So when I came back, when I was in my junior year, I had to beg her 
to get back into class. She ha- always had a waiting list of over 100 people, and uh, it was quite something to get back in. Your background gets even more textured and complicated because you also have been exposed to molecular biology right. in your education. And in fact, a lot of your forms look like something that could be found in a human body or like you're looking at a cell in a microscope. Um, and you say that, that you often call up friends who work in the medical field and chemistry to help with your process. Uh, there's a new piece in your show at BMOCA, and you say you consulted your friend who's a brain surgeon for it. That's correct. Yeah, I have a piece called Shoot, and it's a, it's a piece that's a, about a 13-foot-long aluminum it looks like a chute that might be in a mining, uh, you know, mining equipment. And basically there are anatomical forms that are cascading down this chute that have to primarily do, well, primarily do with the spine. And I wanted to uh, find out a little bit more. What was the texture? What is the texture of a spine? So I mm. called a dear friend of mine from Princeton, uh, Dr. Charles Cobbs who's up in Seattle, Washington. And I said, Charles, what's it like? You know, have you ever had to cut through a spine? And Mm. he immediately sent me images of uh, an actual spine. But then he said, yeah, it looks, it's just like the hearts of palm. And he sent me a picture of the hearts of palm and said, this is it. And I really wanted to know the width of the spine. And it's very different from the top to the bottom. And then trying to find a metaphorical material that might mimic that. Is it your spine? Uh, not necessarily. Um, no, it's, you know, when I, when I think about my work, I try to think about going from very personal moments to how do I make it more global? How does it become everybody's work in a way? Everybody's spine, maybe. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So yeah, it just depends. When I look at your work, I see a lot of the Spanish artist and architect Gaudi. Mm Mm-hmm. Great. He is definitely one of my all-time heroes. Where things have this melting quality, this surrealist quality. Wonderful. That's a great observation. And, and, you know, I look to him. I've always loved his work, and I had the great fortune of going there about five years ago and saw the most amazing exhibit in the basement of the Sagrada Familia, his big cathedral. And it really hit home to me his his way of coming about hybridized sort of abstract forms is really about serious serious play and i found this beautiful quote by him that's really helped develop so much of my work of late where he says he plays and plays and works and works until something floats to the surface so he had this great sense of freedom within how he worked, and he and I, I, I really feel like I do the same kind of thing. I sort of follow myself around and 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 try to put myself in a place where forms sort of unfold with work and time. Hmm. And that the materials and the story of them, I suppose, reveals itself to you. I understand you have what you call a guilty pleasure. You indulge in it once a month when you go to the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before we go, this this relates to your art. What is this? Well, this is really ridiculous. But I go to this the section where they have like, uh, you know, they have all sort of funny household things. But there's also toys for animals, and there are these like fabulous the, the pet section. Of yeah, the, the grocery pet store. section basically. And you know, they're 
there are all sorts of interesting looking dog toys and and a lot of times i'll I'll buy a couple of these and then make molds of them and they and they turn up in my work and again, I hybridize these dog toys so you don't immediately say oh that's that's a dog toy. I put them with other forms, I manipulate the actual form, and they're really quite stunning, you know when you look at them sort of in this new way. Do any uh, visitors to these shows recognize them, that recognize the shapes or are not they so really, amorphous? Not really, okay. not really. And my hope is that because I've abstracted them enough, they, they might be familiar, but you, you can't quite say, oh, that's a dog toy. They're just slightly outside of language. And then my hope is because you can't name it, you will stay with it and look at it longer. Do you lament not being an Olympian? You know, I still do. I when How many years ago is that now? Let's see, 1984. So we're talking, what, that's over, that's 20, 26 years. Is that right? No, uh, not quite. N- n- yeah. <laughs> I got to do the math. It's a long time. But, but I know when the Olympics come around, oh, I definitely feel it. I, you know, I, I know what they've gone through to get there. It is the most amazing thing to play at that high of a level. And and I have to say that the sort of autotonic way that you you play, you you it, you know, you've heard that expression being in the zone. I mean, I really try to mimic that a lot of ways with my work to get myself to a place where I'm not thinking so much. And and it's a lot like being on the field. At the risk of depressing you, it's actually more than 30 years. But okay. <laughs> Thank you. Sculptor Martha Russo lives uh, outside of Boulder. Her first solo museum show is at the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art. It's a 25-year retrospective called Colisere, and it runs through June 12th. Just ahead, a Rockies season preview. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and it is baseball season now. This may be playable. A lot of times it'll come back, and oh, oh my goodness, oh. did he catch that? He caught that. you got to be oh. kidding me. They get the, oh, they almost got a double play. What an unbelievable oh. catch, and Arenado's okay. You know what, and he's even getting some standing ovations from the Giants fans. Fans of the Colorado Rockies hope for more jaw-dropping plays like that one from third baseman Nolan Arenado. He may be one of just a few bright spots, though, for the team this year. It's according to Brian Kilpatrick from the website Purple Row, which covers the Rockies. And Brian, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me again. So the Rockies play tonight against the Arizona Diamondbacks. The home opener is Friday. What is the outlook for this year? Well... It's similar to in previous years where uh, I don't think that it's it, the outlook's not great in terms of wins and losses, um, but that's not really what this season's about either for this team. So uh, you know it's going to be more uh, can they develop these young players for future seasons, which should be near future seasons as opposed to way uh, far down the road. But uh, can they develop these young guys to? Uh, contribute to winning teams here within the next couple of years. A very diplomatic way of saying, don't expect fireworks. It's a building year, I suppose. There you go. Okay. Uh, what is the team's strategy? I mean, after several bad seasons, they traded away their top player. That was shortstop Troy Tulowitzki. And 
you know, they didn't make any big moves to get a superstar in the offseason. So what, what is going on? Shed some light there. Well, the overarching strategy, um, in the words of Rockies GM Jeff Breidish, is they're trying to bombard the organization with potential impact pitchers. Um, so, you know, it's really hard for the Rockies to go sign, you know, star free agent pitchers. Um, you know, a lot of them don't want necessarily want to go to Denver to pitch. It's not an easy place to pitch. So the Rockies are really trying to focus on developing some young pitchers through their organization and hoping that, you know, some of these many, many promising young arms that they're, that they have in their organization start to pan out at the major league level. You say it's not an easy place to pitch. The team has announced that it's going to be raising some of the walls in the outfield. What's the, what's the thought there? Well, I don't know how much of a difference it's actually going to make in terms of run prevention, but you know, I my, my theory is it's the first in potentially a, a a line of experimental moves that they're that the Rockies are going to make um, to try and suppress run scoring a little bit. But then also, it's it's kind of a psychological thing for their pitchers. You know, maybe it maybe it it looks like a little bit of a safety net, and the pitchers will be less afraid to throw strikes and and, and allow opposing hitters to put the ball in play because you know, as you probably know, Coors Field is unforgiving um with fly balls you know a lot of them a lot of cheap fly balls turn into home runs a lot of cheap fly balls also turn into singles and doubles because of how big the outfield is so you know right now it's it's not much more than a safety net for these pitchers but it but it's going to be there's going to be some experimentation i think uh with the dimensions of course field and you know they'll look at some numbers and see if they can figure out ways to help suppress runs a little bit there because it's a high run scoring environment. Yeah, I mean from the pitcher's perspective, our home runs really the problem. I want to play a clip for you from baseball writer Buster Olney of ESPN on his podcast the other day. He talked about the Rockies' decision to raise the fences at Coors Field. I got to tell you, Tim, when I saw this story. I kind of shook my head a little bit because I don't think it's going to make any bit of difference. It's still going to be an incredible offensive park. You know, people have talked about the home runs there. I think the bigger problem for pitchers is the size of the outfield. That to make up for the impact of, of elevation in Denver, the outfield is so much bigger in square footage than it is for so many other places. And pitchers get beat constantly by, you know, these little broken back handle hits that fall in front of the outfielders who have to account for the distance they have to retreat to get back to the wall. So it sounds like you think he's right? I do. I do think he's right. Um, And like I said, I I, I think that moving the fences in, which is what he's alluding to, is going to be a thing that the Rockies think about in future years. Um, Like I said, with this first experiment, I think they want to gather some data and see see how it's working out because, you know, just simply skipping straight to moving fences in is a big investment and a big change. So obviously they want to have all of their data right before they look at a move like that. But uh, Buster's absolutely right. It's, it's, it's the cheap singles and the, and the easy doubles and triples that happen more at Coors Field than any other ballpark. And that combined with, you know, pitcher affecting pitchers' psyches and, and, and pitchers, you know, issuing more walks at Coors Field than other places, too. It just really equals a big run-scoring mess, and that's what we've seen in recent years. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and with baseball season upon us, we are speaking with Brian Kilpatrick from the website to Purple Row. 
Uh, The Rockies play the Arizona Diamondbacks tonight away, and the home opener is on Friday. So a big question mark uh, is what happens to Rockies shortstop Jose Reyes? He was accused of domestic violence in the offseason. Prosecutors announced last week they dropped the charges. They said his wife stopped cooperating with the investigation. He will likely still be suspended by Major League Baseball. What what is the latest? Well, you you've got it there. He's um he he's probably going to miss I would say at least 30 games because Yankees reliever Araldis Chapman had a uh, also had a domestic violence incident during the offseason. He unlike Reyes, he didn't get charges and still received a 30 game suspension. So um you're right, you're right in that Reyes is going to get some sort of ban this year. I don't know exactly how long. It could be a little bit longer than Chapman since he did uh face some charges. Um, but you know, the Rockies are well equipped to replace him, you know, at least from the get go with, uh, with shortstop prospect, Trevor story, who performed really well during spring training. And and they're thinking that he can carry that over to the regular season. What games are circled on your calendar this year? Uh, there's a couple series in June that are pretty big. Uh, the Yankees come to town for a two game series and that's always fun. You know, the ballpark's always packed. Tickets always go for a little bit more little bit more money because there's more demand um, and it's the Yankees, you know, that's baseball's royalty. And then later that month is a big one. That's when Troy Tulowitzki comes back to town uh, with the Toronto Blue Jays at the end of June. And that's, uh, that should be fun, especially with a little bit of drama that, that took place um, surrounding his trade from the Rockies last year. We really haven't talked much about Nolan. Will he get even better this year, do you think? Oh, absolutely. He's uh, he's uh, bordering on the on the territory of being a top five overall player in baseball. I mean, we see every night what he does on defense. He's highlight real plays. Um, the one that you guys had the clip of at the start of the segment was just awesome, and that's the kind of stuff he brings every night. And defensive statistics and metrics support all that. He's you know one of the best. He's probably the best defensive third baseman in baseball right now, and. According to a lot of people who know, uh, you know, former third baseman Brooks Robinson, uh, Arenado's own manager, Walt Weiss, he, he might be one of the best third basemen ever when it's all said and done. And he's only getting better offensively, too. He led the league in homers last year. He's constantly improving his approach. He's just a, he's a magnificent player. I want to go back to this idea that this is a, a building time for the Rockies. Um why not just get a bunch of sluggers and at least put on a good show for fans? You know, it's it's not a bad question um, because as much trouble as the Rockies have had with pitching, um, probably an equally an equally um, troubling issue is just how their offense shuts down when they go on road trips. And you know, the ball moves differently at Coors Field than it does on the road, and it's a huge adjustment for hitters to make. Um, so you know it's it's a it's a valid question as to why don't they just go get guys who can hit anywhere and and you know i it's that's not necessarily a thing the team has tried although they've they have had some success bringing in free agent hitters as opposed to free agent pitchers in their history so but you know that they, they, they've got to figure out even if they do go out and get a bunch of sluggers they've got to figure out how to develop pitchers and how to sustain success at Coors Field and that's you know, that started a couple years ago. It's got to continue through this year. And some of these young arms have got to start panning out um, or they're not going to win 
regardless of how many sluggers they put in the lineup. Did you catch the Empire State Building last night? It was purple for the Rockies, Brian. I did see that. Yeah. I, uh, I I didn't know that they cared so much about the Rockies, but I'm glad. <laughs> well, it, in all fairness, it did change colors to represent many of the teams. But uh, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always fun. Brian Kilpatrick, managing editor of the website Purple Row, talking to us about the Colorado Rockies. Why don't we flash back now to when the Rockies were at the top of their game. This is back in 2007, the year they went to the World Series. I had the opportunity then to speak with the man whose mellifluous voice fills Coors Field during home games. Reed Saunders had just finished his first season in the role. He was just 26 when we spoke. Reed, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. How did you get to the announcer's chair? I mean, like, you know, what kind of training does one have to become the voice of the Rockies? Uh, most of my training came straight on the job. I uh, I was a sports information intern at Colorado State when I was a freshman up there, and just in hanging around the office and conversing with uh, some of the the bosses up there, they said, "Hey, you you've got a pretty decent voice. You should do some announcing. You want to do a softball game?" My first announcing gig was at uh, Ram Field outside of Moby Arena. There was probably. 50 people there generously when you're counting, you know, parents, hot dog vendor, announcing staff, <laughs> scoreboard operator, and, you know, just away I went from there. And after college, I tried out for the Colorado Eagles hockey team, what was just starting up uh, the year after I graduated, and I got that job. So I was a professional announcer from, from then on, and then, you know, the Rockies job came available in the spring. Did you try out for it? or? Mm-hmm. Okay. I sent in an application. There was uh, 261 applicants. And they called back their top 20. We all got to go down to sports column in uh, Lodo and do a live <laughs> sort of, uh, I compare it to American Idol. It was announcer idol that night. <laughs> it, was a, it, was a, it was a packed sports bar and, oh man, five judge panel, lights, camera action, like having to read things in front of a full house. It wasn't quite what I was expecting, but uh, they whittled it down from 20 to 10 and then uh, 10 to 3 that night. And, uh, they had a week-long online vote um, on the final three, and fans could hear our auditions and vote, and they didn't base it on that, but they did want to hear what the fans thought. A week later, they announced that I was the winner. Why did you win? I mean, did they tell you your pronunciation of Tula was, you know, <laughs> what, what was it? Um, I think they just liked how I, my demeanor and how I, how I sounded with it. I think they could hear my natural voice was just something that wasn't too agitating for people to listen to. Um, I knew my way around a script. I, I knew how to, you know, emphasize the right things, and my pacing was pretty good, and the way I introduced players seemed to be uh, adding a little bit of fun to it. Well, let's talk about that, because there are some great names among the Rockies players, and you have the opportunity to introduce them for the stadium crowd in a way that nobody else really does. So, what like are there names that you love saying? I mean, or, or that lend themselves really well to. Yeah, the Rockies do have really good names, like you mentioned. I like the ones that have sort of a natural rhythm to it. Like? Um, like Garrett Atkins, like the A's go together. It's a good assonance. Same thing with um, Yorvi Torrealba with the O's. I, I go down a little bit with Yorvi Torrealba and come up a little bit. Uh, and, you know, Troy Tulowitzki with the alliteration of the T's. 
Um, it's good names. It's just up to me to just put a little bit of icing on the cake, make it a little more fun for everyone to hear and get excited about them coming up to bat. Uh, people may be surprised to know that you, this is not a full-time gig. No. No. So what do you do when you're not announcing? Uh, I sell outdoor advertising space, bulletin boards, bus benches, that sort of thing throughout uh, Denver and state of Colorado. Are they accommodating you given, given all of the, uh, the recent goings on with the team? They've been wonderful. They, um, they're they're very aware of my my second life here as an announcer, and they basically just said, you know, do what you got to do to to make that happen. Uh, Reed, why don't you leave us with what you might say if the Rockies won the World Series? <laughs> oh man, you know the thing about baseball is I don't get to really announce great plays as they're going on or world champions, but uh, I'd be more than thrilled to say. Ladies and gentlemen, your 2007 World Series champion, Colorado Rockies. That would just mm, just puts me over the top. Thank you, Reed. You're welcome. Thank you. Reed Saunders is the PA announcer at Coors Field. We spoke in 2007 when the Rockies made it to the World Series for the first time in team history. They lost to the Boston Red Sox. We'll take a break, then hear your feedback on Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Nope, no, and hell no. You did not mince words when we asked recently if you'd live in the Aerotropolis planned for DIA, essentially a second city center. The new train line opening later this month is a key step in its creation. Mary Manning Schumacher wrote on our Facebook page, CPR News, I lived in Park Hill when the airport was still at Stapleton. On bad weather days, the jets went right over our house, about one every 50 seconds. The noise from one would be just starting to diminish when the noise from the next started to build. Deafening. Joking about DIA's location, Steve McDonald of Denver wrote, If I wanted to live in Kansas, I already would. And Wayne Seltzer of Boulder called an aerotropolis sprawl. Quote, land speculators, developers, and realtors win. Colorado and the environment lose. But our guest, the man who popularized the term aerotropolis, that's author and business professor John Casarda, says if it's well done, an aerotropolis is the answer to sprawl. Without employing aerotropolis principles, which combine airport planning, urban and regional planning, uh, and business site planning, what you get is spontaneous, haphazard development that is usually not as efficient as it could be, often unsightly and ultimately unsustainable. Uh, The aerotropolis model actually redensifies property at and around the airport and at the key transit-oriented development. So uh, it is actually an antidote to sprawl. Finally, Wally Wallace of Denver added, I hope they at least make the housing affordable. A clarification next. We talked about corporate inversions the other day. U.S. companies moving their headquarters abroad to save on taxes. The global data firm IHS, based in Englewood, is relocating to London. We talked to a Washington Post reporter covering the story, Renee Merle. The United States has one of the highest tax rates in the developed world, 35%. It's much lower in most places overseas, including London. Well, Neil England of Denver emailed us after hearing that to say the U.S. corporate rate is higher, but the U.S. allows significant deductions. Thus, the nominal rate of 35 percent overstates what a corporation actually pays. 
We checked back in with Renee Merle from The Post, and she concurs and adds, still, even with those deductions, corporations complain that the rate in the U.S. is too high, especially compared to what they experience overseas. Keep the feedback coming. Again, CPR News on Facebook, at Colorado Matters on Twitter, and there's CPRnews.org, where you can comment at the bottom of individual stories or send us an email. Now is something to whet your appetite for an interview you can hear next week. Denver band The Lumineers hit it big with songs like Ho Hey and Stubborn Love. Four years later, the group is releasing its follow-up album, Cleopatra Drops Friday. Frontman Wesley Schultz and percussionist Jeremiah Freitz stopped by our studio, and we made a little discovery together about what happens when you Google The Lumineers. What will come up first is this dental veneer company, and they're paying a lot of money to come up first on those Wait, results. Wait, really? You guys aren't first? No, because they're they're bribing Google, the, legally bribing. Okay, wait, hold on. I'm look, Lumineers. I want to try this. They should be at the top of those. Like, no, least... you guys really? you guys have moved you past the, the veneers. No. Yeah. Let Even me show you the, the screen. Up top? Yeah. The Lumineers, oh, on weird. sale now, buy tickets. Maybe they gave up. Look up The Lumineers. The Lumineers? Lumineers teeth, that comes up first in the automatic. Nope, it's you guys. You oh, we did have it. made it. Yeah. This is the day. I'm so glad I could be here for this moment. <laughs> I've always wanted to beat the dental community out. It's always been a little dream. That is a taste of our conversation with Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights of Lumineers. You can hear the whole thing next Monday. Until then, here's the title track from the new album, Cleopatra. I was clean. Petra, I was young and an actress When you knelt by my mattress and asked for my hand But I was sad, you asked it As I laid in a black dress With my father in a casket, I had no plans Yeah And I let the footprints, the mud stained on the carpet, and it all like my heart did when you left town. And we'll be right back to talk with a master sommelier, not about wine, but whiskey. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'd be your mistress just to have you around. But I was late for this, late for that, late. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Master sommelier Richard Betts has turned his attention from the complexities of wine to an equally complex beverage, whiskey. He has written a scratch-and-sniff book because he says smell and taste are so closely tied. Betts is former wine director at the Little Nell in Aspen. We spoke late last year. And by the way, spirits are big business in Colorado, with around 70 distilleries here, most making whiskey. And the market is growing 20% a year here by some estimates. And uh, Richard, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You are a rare breed, a master sommelier, who I just saw past the uh, exam on his first attempt. But how big a leap is it to go from wine to whiskey? You know, it's it's not that big a leap because they both are so dependent on place, as in where they're made. Um, and furthermore, that you can 
in each case, you can break it down to three factors that influence the final product. So in wine, it's grape and um, place or earth where you age the thing and the oak that you age it in. And it's the exact same thing for whiskey, except you, you trade grape for grain, right? Grape for grain. And then obviously location plays a big part and mm-hmm. people get into the regionalism of whiskeys. And then the... What uh, you age it in. What you age it in is exactly. huge. Well, why don't we break those apart? So you cram a lot of information into this 21-page cardboard book. Yep. Um, and we should start with grain, the primary ones, corn, wheat, rye, barley. But people are playing with others. They are playing with others. Um, the first thing to think about is is that whiskey is actually just distilled beer. And that's, that's kind oh. of a, yeah, exactly. I get that all the time. Okay. You're like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, no. It's like you take a Budweiser, you put it in the still, and you just concentrate the alcohol. But, you know, if you're drinking a whiskey and it's like 50% alcohol or 100 proof, that sounds really high, and we immediately forget that there's actually another 50%. So what is that, right? And that's all the flavor, and that comes from the beer, and that's why the grains really matter. There are people making quinoa whiskey. There are. Millet. Yep. And rice. Yes. Have you tasted these? Um, we've tasted most of them, yes. Okay. How yeah. is quinoa? Do you want to say how quinoa whiskey is? You know, I'm sure there's something interesting out there. None of them made the book. We, uh-huh. we blind tasted 500 whiskeys to come up with a subset of 300 that we recommend in this book. Um, I don't believe there's a quinoa whiskey amongst them, but it doesn't mean they're not good. Okay. I'm picturing you like Lucy with the Vitamita Vegemin. Trying whiskeys and getting more intoxicated as you go. Yes. Uh, What about wood? So how much does that contribute to the flavor when you compare it to the grain itself? Right. Uh, It's for sure an equal piece, right? Um, Maybe even more so in some ways. If you're making bourbon, you have to use brand new charred oak barrels. And so that tastes like vanilla and smoke and cinnamon and and all these sorts of things in in a very loud fashion. Um, and so it really uh, obviously informs the finished drink. If you're making scotch, you don't use charred new oak barrels. You might use used bourbon barrels. And so it contributes some flavor, including of the bourbon itself, but it's a much more subtle coloring. Um, you might also use used sherry wine barrels, which then contribute actually some of the flavors of the sherry. So you'll find dried fruits and, and nuts and those sorts of flavors that come from the oak and the wine that was in it before. But it's a it's a smaller part of the whole. And would a whiskey that had been made in a sherry oak um, barrel, would that carry a different name? Or what would that be called? I'm not well, sure I've it, ever tried one. Well, it depends on the place. So okay. that's very common in Scotland. Oh. Um, and it's very common in Japan or more, more and more common in Japan. And they may or, not, may or may not put it on the label. It's it's Tony these days, so people are putting it on the label. So you'll see, you know, Macallan, Sherry Finished, or you know, they do a fine oak series. Where actually people are calling out the types of oak that they age these things in. Sherry Finished. And what you're hinting at uh, in part here is the somewhat complex rules. You know, if you call something one thing, you've got to do it by a certain process. Exactly. And so I think you were saying that bourbon had to be in a new barrel. It can't it be... Does. Yeah, it absolutely has to be. And so what happens to those barrels after bourbon's made? Well, they go a lot of places um, and there's quite a lot, quite a lot of demand for them. So they go to Scotland, um, they go to Canada, they go to Ireland, they go to Japan where everybody wants to age their whiskey and use bourbon barrels. They also go to tequila where they use them in making Reposado and Añejo tequila. Um, There's a lot of pressure for those. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the Essential Scratch and Sniff Guide to Becoming 
A Whiskey Know-It-All. It is written by Richard Betts, who is predominantly known for his knowledge of wine, and now he is stepping into whiskey. Um, and I, I guess lastly, to place. Would you say that you could open up a bottle of whiskey and determine its its provenance? I think, yeah, with a little bit of practice, we all can do that, actually. Yeah. It's uh, place informs the whiskey as much as anything else. I mean, think about last time, you know, you were in a, a restaurant where they were frying things. You know, I was in a restaurant in Queens couple nights ago and this, this Greek fish joint and they're frying all this fish and it was great. And then you leave and you still smell like fried fish, right? <laughs> and I was only there for two hours. If you put the whiskey in a barrel and the barrel sits somewhere for 10 years, 12 years, 18 years, 25 years, it's definitely going to start to smell like that place. Um, and that really matters. It's, it's a big deal. Give us an example. So if you, if I put you in a used barrel and I put you in a warehouse on the Scottish seaside you are eventually going to start to smell like the ocean. You know, we've all, you know, you get to the ocean, you open the door of the car and you get that, that breeze, mm. the first breeze that hits you. It's mm. amazing. But that, it has a real smell. And so over time, the whiskey will start to pick up those smells. Um, whiskey with an E. Yes. It's different than whiskey without an E. It's just a matter of where you're from. So if the, the country of origin has an E in the name, then you spell whiskey with an E, a la America. If the whiskey um, comes from a country where there's no E in the name, like Japan or Scotland, there's no E in the name. And where does this convention come from? You know, I have no idea. And uh, there are also <laughs> there are also a couple notable exceptions, like Maker's Mark. They love to be contrarian, so they spell it like the Scottish do. Walk me through a whiskey label. So we've talked uh, in some respects about the label reflecting the history mm -hmm. when it will sell more product. Mm -hmm. uh, is it similar, though, to wine labeling, beer labeling? For sure. I mean, when we all go to the store, it's all about what catches your eye. So there are all kinds of claims made on the label, like... Um, you know, non-chill filtered or bottled in bond or, you know. It, it bottled? Age, What's that? Bottled I mean, in bond? It has to do with where you stored it. It has to, it, has to um, it requires a specific proof. It requires, if it's between a certain age, you have to state the age. If it's over the age, you don't have to state the age. It's all these crazy things. And we break that down in the book and basically point out that most of these things just don't matter, right? They really don't matter. So if it says non-chill filtered, does that mean it's better than a whiskey that was chill filtered? Well, maybe, maybe not. It's up to you as a drinker to decide. I was surprised in reading the book that you do not associate the age of a whiskey or of a scotch with its quality. Absolutely. But of course, when you go to a restaurant um, and you see what they've got, 12 years is one price, 20 years is another, 50 years is a much higher price. Of course. So we certainly in our minds associate age with price and value, but you don't necessarily. Yeah, I mean, importantly, the, there's there's the basic raw piece where if someone saves that thing for 18 years, then 25 years, and then 50 years, well, you lose some of it to evaporation, and the bank wants to collect on the money you borrowed to make the stuff in the first place. So there are costs associated with it, but that doesn't mean it's better. The whole premise of the book is that you scratch and sniff your way through this thing, we dissect it, you look at the pieces, decide what you like, and then you put them back together to arrive at the drink that's going to make you happy. Yeah. Right? I mean, so it's really all about you. That's the whole key. Why don't we do this? So there's, there is in the back of this a kind of uh, a pinwheel mm -hmm. that allows you to... It's a map to your desires. It's to your, your desires. To choose your own adventure, if okay. you will. So do you, you probably have these memorized, the questions. But I, when, how would I start if I'm identifying a whiskey I want? Well, you start in the middle. Okay. Which is how do you like your whiskey? How do you right? like your whiskey? Rocks. 
uh, rocks for me and um, not served up. We, I, I appreciate that. That's the final part. And that's oh. just how you're going to take it. But here, let's look Oh, together. I jumped to the end. Yeah. So when in the book, we break the whole thing down into grain wooden place, as you noted. Okay. And the first thing, because you've scratched and sniffed your way through the book, yeah. you're prepared to answer questions about grain. Do you like the smells of malt and cookie dough? Or do you prefer it spicy like rye? And all those things are in there. And and everyone will answer those questions individually. I'll go with cookie dough. Okay, great. So you're going to head this direction um, on the Choose Your Own Adventure. And then the next question is um, the wood question. Do you want it to have dried fruits, nuts, and you know bourbon finishes? Well, if you chose the malt, that, that's what you get. Um, so you're going to head that direction anyways. And then it by, it actually splits in three pieces. The next question is the place. Yeah. So you've got them all. You've got the dried fruits and nuts. But do you want to have incense, cedar, and sandalwood? Mm-hmm. Do you prefer malt, used oak, and a subtle iodine thing? Or do you want it to be really pungently peaty, smoky, and smell like a sea breeze? I'm going to go with the first the the incense cedar the inc- sandalwood. Yeah. Well, that takes you right to Japanese whiskey. Japanese whiskey. So you're going to go into this little quadrant. quadrant. And then once you're in there, there are about 25 Japanese whiskeys in this quadrant. And they range um, in each of the quadrants from left to right from mixing, actually very, very simple, um, not not bad, just very easy to drink whiskeys, towards sipping, towards sip and savor. And the point being is that as you go farther to the right in the, in the spectrum, they require more of you as the drinker. And so I'm not sure I've had a Japanese whiskey. Oh, but you I, should. I, I knew the Japanese to be whiskey drinkers, but also major producers as Major well. producers. And, and that's an interesting history. I mean, they, they started in the 1800s, but the first distillery, um, Yamazaki, happened in 1924 um, and grew and grew and, and really grew on the Scottish model. They used Scotland as their model for how to do it right. Okay. Um, and then uh, it really fell out of favor um, internationally, which is such a shame because there's so much amazing stuff. And some of these distilleries closed. Um, now they're all the rage and uh, are very, very popular these days. And they're actually a personal favorite. You have uh, at cprnews.org given us a list of some of your more favorite affordable whiskeys. Yes. And one of them is a Suntory Hakushu 12-year single malt. I drink that more than any other. More than any other? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. It embodies, you know, all the the complexity that I I look for in in great scotch or great... um, great Japanese whiskey, but it's but it's very subtle and very detailed and very nuanced. It's pretty. Were you surprised uh, about a place that makes whiskey that's getting into this? Um, you know, we tasted some interesting stuff from Taiwan. That was pretty interesting. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot of whiskey made in uh, around the world, you know, places like India, but it's not necessarily made... Um, you know, uh, with great ambition. It's made for local consumption. Okay. Yep. Briefly, this is a scratch and sniff book. Is there a lab that does scratch and sniff? Um, you know what? It's uh, I, the very first book we did, the scratch and sniff wine book. Uh, I looked all over America for someone to do this with, and we found one little company in Ohio, um, but it was beyond their bandwidth. And uh, basically nobody else, as far as I know, makes this stuff in America any longer. So my publisher, Houghton Mifflin, has a partner, um, in China where they do make this stuff. And that's a real process. 
Um, and getting the smell right, especially with you and your mm-hmm. good nose. Yeah. Well, we all have good noses. But, you know, the idea is we just need to re- uh, replicate iodine. You say, okay, well, why can't you just put iodine on the page? Well, because it's brown to start with. And so it would just foul the book itself. Um, but that's a process of we send the iodine to the lab in China and they work on it and send us back something that approximates it. And we say it's not good enough. And we send it back. And, you know, we might go back and forth twice in a week. And then that went on for months until you really hone in on what what is that, you know, what's the right smell. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Master sommelier Richard Betts has written The Essential Scratch and Sniff Guide to Becoming a Whiskey Know-It-All. We spoke last year. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.